Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. On this episode, we have a great interview with the one and only Dr. Jennifer Weiss. Dr. Weiss is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in pediatric orthopedic surgery and sports medicine at the Southern California Permanente Medical Group. Dr. Weiss is a very well-regarded surgeon within the orthopedic world and has held numerous leadership positions within the AAOS, POSNA, PRISM, and the RJOS. In addition to her clinical research and leadership responsibilities, Dr. Weiss is very active on social media, has her own blog, and just released a podcast with her sister entitled The Grand Rounds Podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Jennifer Weiss. I want to take a moment to talk about a great company that I recently discovered. I know we are all now in search of a new scrub provider given recent events. I want to share with you a company called Just Cause Scrubs that was created by an orthopedic oncologist by the name of Dr. Scott Porter. Just Cause Scrubs is an amazing scrub and medical-related apparel company with a humanitarian focus. Just Cause Scrubs donates 50% of all of their profits to the charity of the customer's choice. What's also amazing is that they're offering 10% off for the listeners of the She Can Fix It podcast. Visit www.justcausescrubs.com slash shecanfixit to get 10% off your order. With the holiday season coming up, a nice pair of embroidered scrubs is looking like the perfect gift. Again, the website is www.justcausescrubs.com slash shecanfixit to get 10% off your order and support a just cause. Dr. Jennifer Weiss, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm so excited to speak with you and thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here and I'm um, so impressed at the work that you've done. And I am, you've had lots of my good friends on your podcast and yes. they have all walked <laughs> away saying, this is a woman to keep your eye on. She is going to take over the world. So thank you for having me. Aww. Thank you. Thank you. What I would love to start with is your background, hometown, college, med school, and fellowship and beyond. So I'm a Jersey girl. I grew up in Short Hills, New Jersey. Um, I went to uh, the Pingree School, which is funny because a lot of people don't mention their high school, but um, uh, every time I do, somebody sends me a message saying, oh my gosh, either I went there or you know, mm-hmm. whatever, the connections. Mm-hmm. It was actually, it had a big impact for me. Um, that school. I went on to um, Williams College, and um, which is in Massachusetts, small liberal arts school. Um, I did medical school at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. It was called then, now it's the Icon School of Medicine. And it was a program actually that was a humanities and medicine program. So it Hmm. um, actually uh, took um, the little three and some IVs and brought in um, people who were not majoring in science um, to encourage us to be well-rounded individuals. And I'm using quotes for the listeners. Um, And the funny thing is they thought that we would all be primary care docs and none of us were. A lot of us are surgeons. Um, Mm. I then went on and did um, internship and residency at Baylor 
and um, that's in Houston, Texas, and then continued across the country to Children's Hospital Los Angeles, where I did fellowship, um, did some of my additional sports training at Children's Hospital Boston with Min Coker and Lyle McKaylee, then stayed on at Children's Hospital for eight years on staff there, and then moved over to Kaiser Permanente, um, where I have been for the last decade. Wow. That's awesome. What's funny is that you mentioned that you mentioned your high school. That's the same thing in Hawaii, where when people ask what school you go to, you always mention your high school, you know, and you don't mention your college. It's just like, they want to know where you went to high school. It's so funny. Um, when did you know that you wanted to specialize in orthopedic surgery? Yeah. So short answer is my dad was an orthopedic surgeon. Um, oh, nice. So it was on my mind from early childhood. Um, and then as most uh, teenagers and young adults do, I decided there was no way I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, um, but maybe I'd go to medical school and then maybe I'd be a surgeon. And then ultimately when I um, did my uh, surgery and orthopedics rotations, absolutely understood that this is what I needed to do with my life. Aww. And then how about when you decided to become an expert in pediatric orthopedic surgery? And you're a pediatric, like a sports surgeon, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I went really niche. Um, so I knew I wanted to do either sports or peds. And mm -hmm. as I started to um, uh, sort of the journey of my residency, I was... Uh, it was a very male-dominated um, orthopedic residency, as they all are, but this was right. particularly so. And I didn't recognize it at the time, but as I was thinking about sports versus peds, there were some uh, draw. There were some draws toward peds that I now understand were the fact that there are more women in peds. At that right. time, I didn't really understand that, so I went into peds um, and sort of tried to talk myself into being uh, somebody who did scoli surgery, scoliosis mm -hmm. surgery. Um, probably because my mentor, Vern Tolo, is just a king of everything to me. And so right. I figured if that's what he does, that's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, about two, three months into fellowship, I was scrubbed in on a scoli case with Vern and um, we lost signals, and um, which I know most of your listeners are orthopedists, but for those right. who aren't, that means that we weren't sure if the signals from the spinal cord were still going through properly. And so we went through what one does when that happens, and uh, he was calm, cool, collected. He is an amazing man. Um, and everything ended up being fine with that patient. Thank goodness. Um, however, I had a self-talk moment. I was like, is this going to be in keeping with me and what will keep me sane throughout life? Right, um, right. And I had a talk with him a couple of days later. I said, I don't know if I'm a wimp. I don't know. And he said, you know, you, you, it doesn't really matter. You have to, where's your heart? And by the way, we kind of need a sports person around here anyway. So I know you almost did sports. So it all kind of came into a confluence. And he said, how about um, instead of uh, doing all 12 months of your Pete's fellowship, we send you to work with Lyle McKaylee and Min Coker. And for those of you who don't know who those people are, they are just phenomenal. Lyle McKaylee's the grandfather of pediatric right, sports. Right. So I got to go spend time with them. And that's how mm. I kind of crafted that subspecialty. And I'm older. And so I was 
um, I wasn't one of the first, but I was one on the hot, the back end of that first generation of people who were doing that. So Min Coker, Ted Ganley mm-hmm. were already around being experts, Mike Bush. And then I kind of like was on the heels of them um, uh, sort of back in the day. And now it's a very uh, popular subspecialty. Yeah, no, it's, I, I feel like everyone wants to do peed sports now because it makes sense. It's just like a nice niche field. Um, one of the things you mentioned in your backstory is your transition from CHLA to Kaiser. And you're actually the first person who I've interviewed who actually works at Kaiser. Um, and I know that you kind of made this move. It, it was in 2011, I think. Um, yes. So I was wondering, what was the inspiration for the move? Yes. So again, I'll give a short answer and then I'll give a longer answer. (laughs) Short answer is I got pregnant with a boy named Ryan, who's my third child. And um, when I got pregnant, it started the process of thinking, what is important to me about my career? Mm -hmm. Um, And what are things that were less important? A word that I'll use, I had a conversation not very long ago with Dave Skaggs, who was one of my mentors from CHLA, right. the word impact. So I started thinking about in my role at CHLA, what was my impact and what would or could it be if I moved over to this different kind of healthcare delivery system? Mm-hmm. Um, I was very scared because I was in the Mecca of pediatric orthopedics in Los Angeles. I was um, in the academic center. I was top of, you know, rising to the top of my game. I was becoming mm-hmm. um, very involved nationally. And I worried right. if I was to make that jump, what would that all mean? Um, so I had to really sit and talk to myself. What was important to me and what was important about taking care of patients? And one thing that I'll tell your listeners who are kind of thinking about which direction they're going to go. Once you're in the room with a patient or once you're in the operating room with a patient, it doesn't matter whether you're in academics, private practice, whatever you're doing. That Mm -hmm. relationship is the same once you're in there. But different organizations and models, um, when you are setting up that relationship and working through the system, that's where things differ. And what I started to believe was that if I moved over to Kaiser Permanente, I believed that I could have a bigger impact than just uh, patients one by one. But I knew I wanted to um, have an influence over how pediatric orthopedic care was delivered uh, Mm. across a bigger organization. So that's, that was ultimately uh, the sort of super tentorial reason that I went over. Um, And then I'll give you the practicals. I was having a third kid um, in private practice in Los Angeles, um, which was very married to my academic career. Um, You get a call from, um, you know, some famous person wanting to have their kids seen you kind of got to jump and answer them. And so although I had all of the control in the world over how I practiced um, to stay with the reputation of the private practice person in this community, the availability was starting to wear me down. Um, And so I was very interested in a system that um, did not have um, so much uh, pressure to be everywhere uh, that my patients wanted uh, me to be. 
Right, right. So it Can was more go- about having more uh, more regular hours, definitely working just as hard, but more regular right. hours and um, less uh, less availability after hours and on weekends. Yeah, no, I have this one instance where I was on call this weekend and this woman, um, this child's clubfoot cast came off because he was, you know, getting chubbier and such. And so, um, and she, you know, I, we let her know, like, we're here. And she's like, I want the attending to do this clubfoot cast. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, I, And it was literally two o'clock on a Saturday. And I and called my attending and he's just, you know, Dr. Twasson's a brilliant man and just such a great human being. And of course he like came in and I felt so horrible because he had like a, like a maintenance man at his house. And he's like, well, I have to wait for this guy to go and then I'll come in. And I'm like, oh, and so I feel you where it's just like you, that where you have to be available. Right. And it's just like, do you have even a work, like that line between work and your home life is just so blurred with that. Correct. Absolutely. Gosh. Can you kind of go into depth of what you meant when you said that you wanted to change how pediatric orthopedic surgery is delivered? Like, can you humble brag about what you've been able to do in the past nine years? (laughs) I'm going to try and insert the humble. Um, Um, so Kaiser Permanente had and continues to have some amazing pediatric orthopedists, um, the way things were organized was a little bit murky. And so Mm. even though it is this very workflow driven organization, it was very unclear when Johnny Smith making up a name, you know, breaks his elbow, do they get their care from the orthopedic surgeon who's on call at whatever center they go to, or do they go to a pediatric orthopedist, or how does this all work? And so what I was able to insert myself into um, in a not very passive way was to say, (laughs) we need to create guidelines. Um, Mm -hmm. As you know, every orthopedic surgeon in the U.S. is trained in peds to some extent in what we'll call the bread and butter cases. So Mm-hmm. What are the things that patients can expect to receive at their local medical centers without having to get into a car to drive to see the specialist? Mm-hmm. And what are the things that they need to um, move for? So when I arrived at, at KP, um, it was before virtual visits were much of a thing. And we all know that COVID has really escalated that. But even pre-COVID, that was something we really started to leverage um, in thinking about not making families drive far distances for their kids. Um, So it's interesting and it sounds so boring, but it was workflows. It was designing for this problem. This is what's going to happen. You know, the pediatrician's going to do X to get the patient to X, and Mm -hmm. this is how it's all going to go. But the real work of it, and the reason that it wasn't boring and it actually brought me joy and frustration, but hopefully mostly joy, was and is the relationship. So I came into this organization, and people kind of knew who I was, and people were wondering, why is she here? Like, why did she leave academics to come here? Um, financially, it was a great decision, you know, work-life balance, it was a great decision, but academically, it seemed like a weird one. Mm -hmm. And so I had to really stop and develop relationships with the leaders around the organization so that they could start to trust me and 
my knowledge and, and my true north being the patient. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say that 10 years later, we have made huge strides in a lot of things, but small sort of bonfires still go up um, mm-hmm. that we have to come back and reimagine and recommunicate, um, trying our best, like all of us do, not to have patients be stuck in the middle of these things. Right, right. That's awesome. And I think what's actually so, what I've been so impressed with is that you've been able to basically like like exponentially increase your leadership experience, even, you know, as you've been at Kaiser, right? You know, in POSNA and AOS. And what do you think has allowed you to continue to be such a presence in the orthopedic community, even though, you know, you left the powerhouse that is CHLA? I think a couple of things. One is, I think that um, when I went over to Kaiser Permanente, Um, That was the year that I got nominated to be on the board of directors of the AAOS. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It was was a big honor. But I think, I imagine what went on in that nominating committee room was, you know what? Kaiser Permanente is a big elephant in in healthcare, right? And so perhaps it's time to have, you know, more of a voice, uh, representing the orthopedic surgeons in within Kaiser Permanente. Mm-hmm. Um, so there started to be this understanding. There were a couple of other Kaiser Permanente orthopedic surgeons that have been very um, present in leadership in the academy. And Tom Barber at that time was one. And Ron Navarro is continues to be another one. Uh, Tom Barber is still very involved, but he left Kaiser Permanente. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of us who were very interested in that crossover. Um, Within POSNA, um, the reasoning, I believe, similarly, they recognized how many kids were getting their care at Kaiser Permanente. And so that became an interest um, in our ability to uh, be innovative, I think, uh, for kids care. And I think also what happened was I stopped being worried. Um, it was no longer necessary for me to have this presence. So I kind of dropped whatever veneer I had to say, this is me. This is what I care about. I care about diversity. I care Mm -hmm. about respecting physicians. I care about patient physician relationships. I care about not calling us providers. These are the things I care about. And I don't have to have this veneer anymore because if you don't want that voice, it's no, you know, I'm fine. I can go back to my day job. And ironically, I think as I dropped my veneer, people seem to appreciate my, um, my voice a little bit more. I think it became more interesting maybe. Yeah. Oh, that's so special. (laughs) I got um, edgier. What, I got edgier. Yeah, no, I support that. I support that. One of the other positions you most recently have held in the academy is that you, um, in 2018, became the chair of the communications cabinet. And so I was wondering, you can talk about what your role has been and what that cabinet's basically purpose is. Yes. Um, and so that cabinet is now a committee. I'm still chair of it. It doesn't matter for probably 99% of our listeners, but I just, if somebody from the AOS is listening, I want them to know that um, we are recognizing that transition. So what... <laughs> <laughs> committee, committee. Committee. <laughs> it used to be cabinet. Um 
Oh my gosh, I can't believe I just harped on that. I'm so sorry. That's so boring. No, I anyway, <laughs> that. It's, it's for the Academy. This is, I, I, I love it. This is perfect. So silly. So um, we are, our arm is the body that is in charge of making sure that the members get the communication. And that is our number one job, according to our strategic plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically grabbing all of the tons of information that um, about what the academy can do for you, what are the opportunities, um, how can you participate, how can it help your patients, how can it help your education, and getting that to our members, which can be a tough um, sort of uh, group of ideas to wrap one's head around. Right. The other piece is making sure that the communication about what we do to the public um, mm-hmm. is uh, intact and has integrity. So um, one of the things that my uh, that I had the most fun with was I started a social media um, ambassadorship. So that's fancy words for I was just getting interested in social media at that time, Mm -hmm. uh, more than just being like a mom who bragged about my kids and my dogs. Um, And so I started to notice that there were some orthopedic surgeons out there that were just killing it, getting Mm -hmm. great information to one another and to patients. And so I harnessed, I actually came after somebody who was anonymous on Twitter, but he just... I'd never met him. I didn't know who he was, but I sent him a message and I said, would you stop being anonymous to take this job and um, to lead this social media task force? Mm -hmm. And he said, yes. Um, And he has, and we developed this group of about 15 orthopedic surgeons to really get out there and amplify the voice. So that's been my most favorite part. Um, Mm. Yeah. So, and it's a great role. Um, When it was a cabinet, I got to sit in the boardroom again, which was fun. Now that it's a committee, I don't, but it's okay. I still get to talk to them all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. And I think, you know, it's interesting speaking of the Twitterverse, it's funny how there are so many orthopedic surgeons who are there and what their roles have been. And you are on Twitter and you have over 6,700 followers, which is very impressive. Um, what have, what in your mind have been the pros and cons of surgeons entering into social media and the Twitterverse? Yeah, I, I don't have too many cons. Um, there have been, I'll start with the cons because I think they're limited. Um, there have been some sticky situations in which, right. um, you know, somebody says, something and it gets interpreted in a way and, and the echo chamber swirls. Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen that happen a couple of times and what we've done as a community from the AOS is kind of stop the Twitter conversation and start a real life conversation and be able to pull ourselves out. But I think in the positives are that, um, socially the AOS, when I was growing up and my dad was an Academy member. It was a mm-hmm. very social uh, organization. It involved, um, you know, the actual annual meeting involved so much um, happiness for these. All of them were white guys at the time, for the most part, right? They would all, right. you know, a lot of them would bring their families, and there was this kind of old school gathering. Mm-hmm. And as we have gone through the generations of the way healthcare is now. People don't tend to bring their whole family, make it as much of a community 
Um, they go solo, they fly in and fly out as quickly as they can. And so one of the opportunities that I felt was important being the communications person was we need to reform and reharness a community. And so on Twitter, the people that sort of initially came together, um, Nancy Yen Shipley is another one, Karen right. Sutton, um, Dustin Shewitt, mm-hmm. um, Jamie Bellamy. These are people who were so positive, all of whom I like grabbed put to make ambassadors immediately because they were so positive and just rising each other up. They were talking about patience. Um, and, and cases they were talking about just silliness about, Hey, does anyone have this, you know, um, uh, this issue in the OR where their socks bunch up or whatever the silly things are. And, you know, what do you listen to on the, on the radio when you're, when you're operating those kinds of things just became really fun to watch and listen. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's brought the community together and I'm hoping that when we go back to real life meetings, that we will really continue to see this, um, these friendships blossom Um, because it ultimately, I believe that the work-life integration of having your friendships within the community and um, it it ends up enhancing our practices and our love of what we do and ultimately makes us better doctors, I think. Right. So that's that's so true. My approach. Yeah, no, I was, one of the interesting things was I was talking to um, Dr. Meg Whitmarsh-Brown about this Um, and it's kind of that interesting thought of when, are we as physicians allowed slash supposed to engage in sort of political discourse almost? And I think that this was kind of heightened when the coronavirus pandemic kind of came up and not to say that coronavirus is a political issue, but it's just, you know, for someone who's uh, the chair of the communication communications committee, uh, what is kind of your thoughts about physicians taking on political views in their social media? I think it's I think it's a beautiful topic and I personally believe that we are physicians and we're people and mm-hmm. I believe that when our politics um enhance our attempts to make our patient care better right that those two things intertwine um and I believe I personally am vocal in those ways. I have a bit of a um, box around me and my voice currently because I am representing the Academy. Um, And so that makes me definitely think about um, uh, every word I put out there in a different Mm way. I support um, orthopedic surgeons and having a political voice. And I think that Um, It's entirely important to our organization that uh, we have a political voice in terms of our advocacy. Um, And I think it's interesting also the history of our organization is that the politics have been a bit Mm -hmm. one-sided. And as the newer generation is coming up, I am making it my business, um, my own politics aside, um, to really amplify the voices that haven't been heard traditionally um, to make our organization aware that it's not um, all one uh, one view from one side. Right. So I really... um, amplify and I'm excited about that. And I think um, for those people who follow or know of Jordi Gansudis, um, he is the advocacy chair for POSNA and Mm -hmm. he is extremely talented in his words and his 
construction of his thoughts. And again, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm on purpose sticking away from where my politics lie in this, but right. I am thrilled that his words are out there because he is so passionate. Mm-hmm. Ugh, that's awesome. Um, one of the things that I love about you is that you're just such a strong voice in so many realms and that you have your website, your blog, Twitter, your leadership. And um, one of the, I think my favorite blog post from you was something entitled, Don't Blame the Canary, the Coal Mine is Toxic. And one of the quotes that you have in there is that there are few fields that continue to function in the antiquated way that orthopedists function. We work long business hours, then we cover call after hours. When we're awake all night, most of us continue to work the next day. And so I, first of all, thank you for writing this because I think it's something that we, it's an unpopular opinion, I think, in surgery in general. Um, And I was hoping you can kind of talk about why you decided to write this piece. Yeah, so I am... um... I have a strong interest and probably my biggest passion is in advocating for physicians, not so much politically, although in that way as well, but within our, within our practice, within our ability to function, um, uh, with integrity. And, um, I believe that the way that many of our systems have evolved in the last decade or so have, um, increased, uh, toxicity in ways that um, are morally injuring our doctors um, and coming between the doctors and the patients in a way that it matters for the doctors, because I care about the doctors, but it matters for the patients. And so when I wrote that piece, um, I had read something a couple of days before that, um, which is a very popular belief, but talking about how we all should have resilience and the more resilient we are, you know, we can fly to the moon, whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. I, um, have been speaking for years about this. Don't blame the canary, uh, Mm -hmm. aspect of moral injury. And, um, I, I believe that until we stop and recognize that, Physicians in general are a resilient bunch. We're the Mm -hmm. ones who got ourselves together to take our MCATs, to get through medical school, to get through residency. Um, We're not a non-resilient bunch. And so to be preached at that we need resilience, I find to be condescending and unacceptable. Um, Yes, resilience is a great thing. My sister is a mindfulness teacher. Um, she teaches at Stanford School of Business. Mm-hmm. She's, this is what she does. Um, and she and I together in our podcast are talking a lot about this aspect of even she who has her background in meditation and, mm-hmm. and all of this. We both are so um, passionate about telling physicians around the country please don't be told this is on you and you just need to breathe quietly and do some yoga and eat some organic food. This is about the system supporting you and not giving you paper cuts all day long. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's one of the things that I'll, um, that one of my favorite residents here, Dr. Justin Keefer, his favorite words is irksome. And so one of the most irksome things I find about graduate medical education is this idea that, 
you know, that we're expected to do so much and that I'm expected to be an excellent physician at hour 23 and an excellent physician at hour three, you know? And I think that it's, what's frustrating is that there's so much talk about it, right? There's so much talk about, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, physician burnout, physician wellness and all these things. And it's just like, what actually needs to happen, right? And if you think about when the resident um, education changed to the 80 hour work week, it was because literally a patient died. And so is it gonna have to be such that a patient has to die in order for a change to be made or what, you know, as someone who's been advocating this for many years, what do you think like actually needs to happen in order for there to be this change in culture? I think physicians need to stick together on it. And I think that, you know, the world, everybody's allowed to, um, to work together toward common goals in their profession. However, physicians are very criticized when we, when we do try to work together and we get accused of, um, of uh, all sorts of things. Um, But Mm -hmm. the fact is we all have to come together and decide we are no longer, it's no longer going to be a sign of strength to operate for 36 hours, that it's no longer going to be um, seen as a positive thing. And until we can agree upon that ourselves, it's going to be very hard to get administrators to understand this. There are some mm-hmm. organizations that do it better than others. Um, at Children's Hospital Boston, when an attending is doing surgery after having been up, or if they consider themselves to be tired, that's part of their consent process. Right. Um, and I believe that that should be the case. Um, in my practice, um, our um, uh, I've been, as you might imagine, quite vocal about it. And right. so the way our call works, we staff the trauma room the following afternoon. Um, but I have a very strict ask of the guys in our group. You're tired and you were up all night. You raise your hand and there's somebody else that's on call that day and we just shift things around. Um, right. You do one case, not two. Um, but if anybody at any time is feeling fatigue, you don't go into the operating room. That's, and, and so that I had to be in my practice for a good six years before I could say that without being, um, perceived as being perhaps wimpy um, or or selfish or weak. Yeah. 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 And it's also, yeah. And it's a pay it forward mentality. So before I was using those words as an assistant chief, what I would do was when I was on call and I would watch my partner the day before me, um, I would walk into their office that morning and say, hey, I'm on call, hand over everything. You don't need yeah. to do that case today. Um, and um, that that pay it forward mentality set the groundwork for making it the reality. No, that's, that's awesome. I think that's honestly something where we can do more of where it's because I think, you know, when you when we have our consult days, there's this sort of mentality where you finish your consults to the end. Um, And so even if you get like three consults right at the, you know, right at the end of your shift, you see them through. And what was interesting is that during the COVID pandemic, when we literally had to limit the number of hours that we were in in the first wave, we started handing things off because we were mandated, like you must leave. We don't want you spending as much time in the hospital. And life was better right? Life was better when we were able, and it was just that understanding where it's just like, all right, I got these like three pages and you're like, no worries, just like hand it off. And I wish we did that more. And I should probably do, I should be a better three and do that for my twos. 
Um, but but yeah, thing, it was just life is better. But one of the things that we have to recognize as we struggle with that is that also is calling upon interchangeability, mm-hmm. which is a blow to our egos. And so it's definitely putting aside that just because I made this connection with Mrs. Jones and her hip is broken, I got to just call it out that the guy following me on call is just as good at doing this surgery as I am. And right. Mrs. Jones needs to understand that. And so there's a little bit of ego that, um, that we need to set aside in this individually right. as well. No, that's so true. So true. Gosh, love this. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. I uh, Okay. Um, we've talked a lot about the past and what you've done and sort of some of the things that we're passionate about, but I was hoping you can describe some of your future goals and projects for you clinically and research and your work with various organizations. Sure. Um, I would say the project that um, I'm the most excited about right now involves um, behavior amongst uh, physicians and um, clinicians in the perioperative space. And by that, I mean harassment, bullying, mm-hmm. aggressions. Um, you know, I'll use the term microaggressions, even though I don't like that term. Um, and what I've been doing is working with a team of um, women surgeons. I'm so psyched to say this. Um, And we have been looking at our own house at Kaiser Permanente um, to identify the link um, between who gets, who receives this behavior um, and how is it linked to moral injury and burnout um, and um, expanding upon how that happens amongst the different specialties. So not just orthopedics, um, but are there links to people who are women who are in male dominated fields? Is it truly worse for us? Um, And, um, and how that all interrelates. So that's my biggest passion. We've done some of that work in POSNA as well. Um, Mm -hmm. We've also done some of that work with the AAOS. So that's probably the thing I'm the most excited about and really ties together my passions of, uh, you know, being a mom and a woman and a surgeon and in the AAOS and POSNA and at home in KP, that's kind of the thing that, that brings it all together because ultimately I want young women to look at orthopedics and say, that's something that I can do that I should Mm -hmm. do. And that if I do it, I'm going to have a good life um, and be respected. And I think that that's the, um, the thick layer of dirt on our floor that needs to be swept off. Right. No, so true. So true. I would love to go into our final segment which is the final five, which are the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. So my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? My favorite procedure to perform, this is going to sound crazy as a pediatric orthopedist. And as you know, I didn't prepare, so I'm doing this on the fly, is actually a gamma nail. <laughs> I, I love femoral nails. I love femoral nails. They're just my favorite. It's just like the little old ladies, like they're so psyched when they get up and they walk and it's just so immediate. And um, I feel like I have my superhero cape on. So that's my favorite procedure right now. No, I, it's, I I think that I, we do like as interns, we do hip fracture call. And so it's like they're, you know, one of our chances to feel like a, you know, first assist and all those sorts of things. And man, it's so cool how you're able, you know, like the interns doing it. Right. And I mean, of course there's the attending right there and all those sorts of things, but it's like you as an intern really feel empowered as you're able to do it. And it's so like, you're literally fixing one of the strongest bones in the body with like these dinky little incisions. 
Oh, Very cool. So good. So good. Um, what are your go-to topics for grand rounds, presentations, or invited speaking engagements? Moral injury is, uh, is my, is my go-to I'll, I'll, you know, my clinical, um, go-to, um, I do a lot of talks on female ACLs, um, Mm -hmm. talks on patellar instability, um, pediatric trauma elbows. Um, but my favorite is to talk about moral injury in women in orthopedics. Right. Right. And he for she male allies. That's another big one for me. Yeah. Nice. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? This is usually the hardest one. Yeah. Um, I'm going to um, go with, it wasn't that long ago, actually. Um, and again, it's an adult story. But I had this older woman who um, broke her ankle and mm-hmm. um, fixed her ankle. And um, she was in her late 60s, she is in her late 60s. And her greatest concern, you know, as a good, as a good surgeon, I try to say, what is it that you want to get back to? And let's have Mm -hmm. some expectations, whether it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. It was surfing with her grandkids. Oh my God. Surfing with her grandkids. And, um, she, uh, just was a warrior, you know, um, (laughs) getting back there. Um, and also it turned out that she was the mom to these grandkids, like these grandkids lived with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was just one of those strong women. Um, she was a retired nurse and just somebody who, uh, I, I, I'm not sure I would have known all of those things about her if I hadn't asked that question. Right. Um, so I think that's my current favorite story. Oh my God. Only in LA, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or Hawaii. Uh, that's true. <laughs> Hawaii. That's true. True. What are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Yoga, mm-hmm. um, tennis, um, my Peloton. I'm a little in love with that. Yes. And um, <laughs> and I mean, I should say first, my, one of my kids was just looking at me, hanging out with my children. I love them. Um, and my <laughs> husband and uh, my two dogs. I have a Rhodesian Ridgeback and a Golden Retriever. Aww. Oh, durable. Awesome. My final question to you, Dr. Weiss, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Yeah, um, I'm going to give two. Um, one is nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Right. And um, the second is the basics. If you know your anatomy and you know the patient, that's what's going to be expected of you. Um, and if you combine that with caring and um, putting yourself out there, those, those are, I wish I had done better on all of those when I was starting out. Right. Ugh, amazing. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix a Podcast. I really have enjoyed speaking with you so much. And I sincerely wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing. And you too. You're doing wonderful work here. Thank you for <laughs> thank having you, Thank me. you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Jennifer Weiss. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, 
without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening, and please stay safe.